Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Show, where we focus on our core tenets, impact, freedom, and progress. Join me and others as we grow through education and discussion. Welcome everybody to the AJ Osborne Podcast. Now, I have to first apologize to all you guys because it's been a minute. The reason though is we recorded a few podcasts and when I got done with each of them, I did not think they were up to the level of the podcast or the viewership. I felt that it was a little salesy and I don't want that. And so I always maintain and tell all my guests that if I think that you're pitching ideas or if I think that it comes across that or it's too salesy or frankly too, even if I don't really think that your the advice is good sound investment advice, I'm not going to post it. Now, I am totally okay with people having different advice. In fact, I uh, encourage that. I want people that do things that I don't do because that's the whole point of the podcast is to learn. But there's difference between um, people having different investment strategies and vehicles and doing different investment things uh, than to have outright bad business models, uh, things that come to mind or things like MLMs or something of the sort, right? That I think that can draw the conclusion to the kind of things that, I, that I'm talking about that I'm like, uh, you're trying to use my my listener base. I don't like that. Uh, it's my job here to uh, protect you guys and to make sure that the information coming out, whether I agree with it or not, is not the point, but that it's good, solid, helpful information for you guys to make your own decisions. So with that, we're moving on here. Um, I have a great lineup of um, some new podcast guests that I'm really excited about because after this, I was frustrated. I'm like, we got to step this up a notch. But two, I think the first one that I'm going to show you guys um, a week, uh, two weeks, I got to remember here what's coming out, is from actually an 18-year-old. It's a crazy story. I'd been talking to him. He has this investment startup club, and he wrote a book on investing as a teenager. I just got a teenager, everybody. My daughter just turned 13. So for me, I don't know, but that hit a chord. And when I was listening to his stuff, I'm like, you know, this is the stuff. You all know how passionate I am about education, about financial education. Um, I own a school, for crying out loud. Uh, and that really hit a chord with me. And it was amazing the things that he was saying and doing that I'm like, the average adult uh, really doesn't understand this. And he'd been doing it for years. So um, I'm trying to uh, bring on a more wide array of uh, guests and topics that I just simply find interesting. But I wanted to talk about a few things. If you guys follow me on Instagram, you, you may have noticed over the last week or so, I've kind of been on a posting craze about uh, a few subjects um, in this wild, crazy time that we're all in. So I think this is a really pertinent and relevant topic that uh, I want to hit on today. One that I'm, you know, I've always thought and always understood, but I learned later on in life that these investing and wealth principles are not commonplace. Uh, the first thing is that um, assets, uh, assets always rise. Uh, until they end. Now, this is important because it's twofold. Um, and the 
options of it is they increase or they die. And there's not a whole lot of in between. Now, the reason it's important to understand this is the motivators or the functions behind it. You have to remember that as of right now, there is the world's largest military force that has ever existed on planet Earth backing a government that is doing everything in their power to raise asset prices. Um, that is literally the financial and monetary policy. It is to make sure that inflation rises. Um, there's a lot of reasons for this. This is something that will never change, right? It's not so that people think that, oh, prices going up is bad. No, that's actually not true. The government is every single day trying to make sure that happens. Um, they need inflation, right? Inflation is exaggerated in assets. And you have two sides of this table. You have the people that own the assets. Then you have the people that have to buy commodities and that are cash-based and their cash dwindles in value, yet their expenditures rise. One side is the government is literally making you wealthier, and the other side, the government is actively making you poorer. That's it. It's there. That is in its simplest form as true as it gets. And when you look at what has happened over the last two decades, the wealth uh, that has been created in the United States is mind-boggling, and the wealthy just keep getting wealthier. Now, people say that it is a political thing, or people talk about a tax thing, or it's not. It has nothing to do with that. The reason the wealth have gotten so wealthy is because the government's intervention in our economy, trying to save it. So in order to save the economy, you have to save businesses. You have to save the assets because assets and businesses produce revenue, have value, which in turn then is displaced to society. The problem that happens when the government gets involved and props up those assets, they do it by diluting the value of money. When they do that, the spread sharply and very noticeably between the wealth and the poor explodes. Stock markets rise. And I love how the news presents things. They go, did you know over the last 10 years that the wealthy on average have gotten an increase of you know 60% uh, while the poor, poor have got nothing? And I'm like, well, now hold on here. All you did is took the metric of whatever the stock market went up and then applied it to the wealthy, where that actually applies to everyone. If you had a 401k, your net worth rose the exact same as Bill Gates. The only difference is he owns a lot more, right? And this comes down to the basic and simple principle. Assets rise. If you own them, they're going to go up. If you don't, then you're missing out on all that gain. Now... Of course, nothing lasts forever, right? We have crashes. We have implosions, which was the second part of my, um, my uh, what should I call my Instagram story storm, um, was that as the government intervenes more and more, these prices become not based upon fundamentals. 
They are based on government intervention, which then leads to what happens when the government stops doling out, what are we at, $4 trillion since coronavirus, I think? $4 trillion. And we wonder why the economy is doing so good in the first and second quarter of 2021. Well, you put gave Americans $4 trillion. Of course. This is the largest consumer expenditure handout that has ever been done in the history of the world. The economy will boom because people don't go pay off debts because they didn't have to pay off debts. They already had. We had a two wave of stimulus, right? You got to remember that people, they say, oh yeah, unemployment went up. But unemployment was then guaranteed at over 90% of their salary. In fact, if you actually do the equation for almost every state in the United States being unemployed, you were paid more than you were when the average American was working full time. So Americans made more money than they ever had before, which is so counterintuitive, it's hard to understand or even think about. And I'm not saying that unemployment is not a real thing. I'm not saying the economy was bad. It was. It absolutely was. But before we started doling out, let me give you perspective here. The government gave me $12,000, me, $12,000 in stimulus. They just sent it to me. I didn't ask for it. Nothing. It's just like, poof, it arrived. I'm going to get back to more of that on why I received that. Um, But the point being was I was not only full-time employed. My assets over that same period of time had increased in the tune of millions. um, And our revenues had gone up. Uh, But all Americans received this. So, yes, now I know you're saying, but there's this income switch. Okay. So, first of all, you have to understand how taxes work. I've had a effective negative taxable income for I don't even know how long because that's how depreciation works. That's how write-offs work. I have multiple businesses, right? But it doesn't mean I didn't make income. I made a lot of income. The point being, though, was it's your net effective, and that's how they did it. So what that meant is anybody that had depreciation from any real estate, anyone that had a loss or a write-off, which whether it was a tangible, actual, or not, doesn't matter. They could have still made a million dollars that year, and they would have gotten the full, absolute full donation from taxpayers. All of us are now paying people like me. That's stupid. But what it shows is, besides my rant and standing on my soapbox, what it shows is there was astronomical sums of money that have been pumped into for people that didn't need it. And the people that did were getting over 90% of their uh, – it it effectively was 120% when you look at the numbers or or more um, of their their wages when they were working. So – This has nothing to do whether this is good or bad. That is not the point of this. I'm not saying that. I'm not even getting into that. What I'm saying, though, is when you do that and then you get put 0% interest rate, which means you give money for free, the economy booms. You don't even need workers. So then what happens is you're running at things that are like, half capacity because of coronavirus. So demand skyrockets, yet supply doesn't. 
and people go, I don't understand. Why did why did wood go from nine dollars a panel to sixty five dollars a panel? Hashtag true story. Um, I think it was actually like twelve dollars. I think it was twelve dollars and something cents. Um, but why did wood go from that to sixty five dollars in well? First of all, we shut down borders. We also put all plants at 50% capacity. And then two, they can't get workers. So at the highest unemployment in our nation's history, I couldn't get workers because I couldn't pay them more than the government was paying them to do nothing. The government, I was actually competing with taxpayer money, my money, because we pay millions in property taxes. Um, to, and other taxes, millions, uh, it, it, to the government, right? So I, we were working at, you know, half capacity, but these big mills and everything else, while everybody was getting the lowest interest rate ever to buy homes, to add expansions, to do build-ons, um, this has created a boom, a boom in the stock market, a boom in everything. Money is cheap. All right. Now I've kind of set the stage here for what's going on. The question is then not whether asset prices go up. That's just going to happen. What I'm trying to show you is that the government is actively engaged in getting inflation up. They're actively engaged in lowering the value of the dollar. It's not a mistake. It's it's not something you want to do, right? It, this we always knew. When when I really started, so we started buying some storage facilities in the early 2000s. After that, after when 2008, that's when I formated, uh, form, that's when I started with my two partners, Bitterroot Holdings, which was really based on a simple philosophy. The government is going to need, or the economy is going to need massive government intervention. That means the government is going to come in and stabilize our economy. They're going to pump so much money in, we're going to have massive asset inflation. This is 2009. So that was it. That was the main philosophy. I understand this asset uh, uh, macro. Okay. The micro was we needed to find an asset that we could turn around, focus on revenues, which is really what's important because that works today, tomorrow, whenever. And also going to get to that. Um, the So with that said, it was just a simple understanding of how the government interworks with the economy. Um, while other people were saying, you can't get into real estate right now, we're in a real estate crisis and things are going to crash again. I'm like, that doesn't make sense. The government's not letting it. That's adverse. You know, that's not how the government works. Um, the real question, though, that we always have is when does this end? When does the music stop? So what what it really means is how do we get off the government, right? So we're all hooked up to the government IV right now. Um, I've talked about this a lot, but we are not a, a functioning capitalist economy right now. We're not. We, we, the government has so intervened um, that it's not a, we're not in a normal marketplace. So the government needs to get off of or the economy needs to get off the government. Now, they were doing a fabulous job after 2008. They were paying back all the QEs, right? Um, That was working very, very well. Everything was going good. And then coronavirus happened, and then that started the whole government intervention again. So now the question is, can they do this? Can we get off of it? And what does that mean? 
Well, we have a few philosophies and a few things that we think. First of all, we think that prices will continue to go up, but we also think that eventually interest rates are going to rise um, because they'll have to. They'll have to with inflation. So the government, let me back this down. The government wants inflation. They do not want hyperinflation. Okay, Hyperinflation kills economies, but really they're trying to stop deflation. Deflation means asset prices are always falling, so nobody buys assets. Companies fail. You can't get bank financing. The economy just goes into a depression. So deflation equals a depression. But hyperinflation, as we've seen throughout history in lots of different economies, um, as well as our own back in the 80s when we had 16% interest rates, that was done by my favorite Fed chairman, Paul Volcker, that big bald guy. Um, and Paul Volcker, there was hyperinflation, and Paul Volcker said, I know how to stop hyperinflation. We're going to let go of the reins here, and we're just going to let interest rates go crazy. He put the United States back in – he put the United States into a deep recession. He shut down the economy, but it worked. He, he didn't cure. He tamed inflation. Inflation came down. We had this great thing. Poor Carter. Bless his heart. He got crucified for it, but, um, but it worked. Uh, Carter got kicked out. We stabilized markets. Monetary policy could start new. And then that led to the wonderful era of Reagan to drop taxes, everything else. And the United States started off on this great roar because we have cured inflation. The point is they cured inflation through rising interest rates. So now the Fed has all these tools. All right, we can create inflation by throwing money in the economy. And then when it gets too hot, we'll let interest rates rise and that'll stop the economy. This is the game they play, right? This is how it works. This is how your world that you live in every day when you go buy anything. This is how our, our economic gods who are pulling the strings of the economy, this is what they're doing. This is what they're thinking about. But you have to realize that interest rates can rise without the Fed saying it because of supply and demand of the bond yields, which we're seeing now. So at the end of the day, if there's going to be a lot of inflation, which they're targeting 2.5, uh, which means it'll go over 2.5 because they need sustainable average, right, um, for at least four quarters. I mean, maybe it's three. But um, with that said, they're going to allow interest rates to rise as soon as we hit those metrics, which we're already hitting them. Because uh, they can't have hyperinflation, then we'll have shortages, on and on and on. We all know what that looks like, and it's bad news. Ask Venezuela. Um, so the government will stop it. They'll do that through interest rates. Now, rising interest rates, all that does is contract the economy. It contracts, excuse me, it contracts the money supply in the economy. So it makes debt harder to service. It makes debt harder to get. Now, that in lies the very, very important thing, debt. Now, if you listen to my podcast at all, you already know that is what money is. Money is nothing else but IOUs, whether it's on the government side, the Fed side, the, um, the 
borrower side, the bank side, every single dollar that you have in your pocket has been leveraged astronomically through our banking system and everything else. I'm not against this. I'm not saying this is wrong. It's how it's always been done um, outside a long, long time ago. Uh, but it's important to know that when those contractions happen, like money is leveraged up, it's leveraged down. So money being harder to buy to get and service is not just a problem for you or me or anybody else. It's a big problem for the largest debtor in the world. That's, that's our uncle, Uncle Sam. For the largest debtor in the world, interest rates can't go too high because, <laughs> well, we all have to pay this debt, which is now the highest it's ever been. Um, and two, the debt that has been put on, like we were talking about before, is not the same. People will refer back to World War II, which is always hilarious, um, because the government debt went to infrastructure, it went to training people, it went to rebuilding countries, and it was putting assets on the balance sheet. Our debt now is not putting ba balance on the asset sheet. Now, first here, let me stop. This is not a doom and gloom thing. I, I'm setting this complicated stage and trying to make it as simple and clear as possible, but there are actions forward because what is important that you understand so you can play on the micro level and do it, right? I, I don't time markets. I'm not looking what the Fed is doing and saying, oh, well, because of this now, I'm going to do this. Only in the long-term scope of things, really long-term, but year to year, not a whole lot. I'm take a drink there as I rant along. Um, so now when this money gets too expensive, that means we have to service the debt, which means taxes rise, which rising taxes is also a contractor of the economy. The question is, Ray Dalio calls this a beautiful deleveraging. That is when a government can get off its own debt, its own you know, constant IV of stimulus without destroying itself. And that's what all of us hope and pray for. But, all right, now it's time to get on to the second part of this podcast for all of you that are just like, this was the most boring economic lesson I've ever had in my entire life. Um, you know, econo I hated economics when I was in college, mostly microeconomics. Like I, 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 I didn't do good, in fact, in microeconomics because they were always making me make these stupid charts and these stupid supply and demand charts that took basically everything relevant out of the decision making of that business out and, and boiled it down to two simple points, which I'm like, this will never happen in real life, ever. So I'm like, why are we doing this? Like, there's no way that any business will not have any other variables in it except for these two, and that will give us this beautifully defined supply and demand curve. Um, it was just stupid. So I had a hard time with it. Macroeconomics, I really liked. The reason being because it was philosophical, more approach and understanding government intervention with the economy, and it took in lots of variables and basically said we didn't know, which is what economists should really do. They should just really say, we have no freaking idea. And if 
they did that, we'd all be much happier um, because they'd be telling the truth. So the point of it is to understand um, consequences for actions and what the government is doing and why it's doing it and how that affects you. Now we're going to the micro. The micro is in not supply and demand curves, not that stupid stuff. Um, the micro is in action. Okay, uh, when we view, we th I think globally, but I act micro. Okay, so when I'm looking at global things, really important things are migration patterns. Micro, I'm looking at individual assets, its revenue, its ability to pay its debts, and the potential revenue of that asset, how the operator is actually running this business. Okay, that's how you should think. Is this market a good market? Is this operator a bad operator? Can I do a better job? Can I compete? Can I increase the fundamentals of that business? And are the fundamentals good? Right? Are they good? This is what we call your investment vehicle, right? Uh, basically, your strategy, your thing that's your wealth vehicle that's going to take you to financial freedom. Mine was storage. There's a lot more. I could have picked a whole bunch of them. That's what I landed on because that's what I knew and I wanted to take advantage of real estate as well. But we've, we've done other businesses and we do other businesses, uh, large, a lot of money in other ones. But the point being is when we looked at it, we needed to figure out a great way to microly execute. So when you're hearing all this stuff on the TV, and I hope that this, I hope that you're like, oh, okay, this is insightful. I understand better the lay of the landscape in today where we're at, why the, why the government's doing what they're doing, why we're seeing what we're doing, seeing, and why the, why the talking heads on CNBC, why they are, you know, saying what they're saying, which I don't listen to those. Um, but Understanding is only important to not make you scared. Too many of us were in this realm where we're just like, I have no clue on what's going on. And so it paralyzes you. Understanding that the government is actively engaged in rising and stabilizing asset prices over the long run is extremely important. That's the whole rant that I just went on. How they do it, why they do it. And why it will never, ever, ever stop. Because if it stops, the music stops. That's the game we play. Your focus, now that you understand this, fundamentals of value creation and identification. What is the value in this business or asset? And what are the fundamental and principal drivers of the revenue in this business model. Let me tell you about a business that I got out of because I thought, oh, this isn't good. There is some fundamentals here that I don't like. That would be gyms. I know my timing was perfect. We got out of it before 2021. It's because I knew the coronavirus was coming. That's why. That's why I got out of it. Man, I wish I was that smart. But it's actually one of the things that I love about sticking with the fundamentals. If you stick with the fundamentals, your butt is always saved, and then you just look so good afterwards. It's crazy. you know. And people are like, oh, you're so smart. And you're like, man, if you only knew how stupid I am, that I couldn't even think that big. I had to think really, really basic to make this work. But you always look smart after the fact. All right. So when gyms, when we were looking at gyms, we'd started buying up, and we bought these locations. We had a business model we liked. 
really, we were shocked by the amount of cash flow that could be really passive and the lease rates that we were getting. So we started in 2010, 11, I think. Um, yeah, that's probably about right. Um, I'm not going to say that, that we used a franchise. I'm not going to say the franchise we used because I don't want to get in trouble. It's nothing bad. I like them. But the economics, were though, were simple, right? We could get people in paying month to month. It was cash flow heavy, maintenance low. We could... And we could use technology to systematize and really automize most of that business, all things that were beautiful to me. After we'd got in it and after we were um, operating these gyms for a while, what we really found out, guys, was this. The revenue drivers in the marketplace were pushing the revenue down, not up. So gyms were getting bigger. They were putting and the home gyms were becoming big and they were starting a downward pressure on revenue. So 39.99 would no longer cut it. It's now 9.99. It's now 4.99, right? Simultaneously, lease rates were posed to start rising like crazy due to the government intervention and stabilizing the economy, economies rising and demand rising. So I knew lease rates were going to go up, and now there was downward pressure on revenue. That is not a good spread. That is a spread, actually, that ends up killing you. So there was two ways we could go about this. We could either say, we're going to create a competitive model that is different, different, and we're going to buy the location so we control our cost, and this cost is set in at X, and we believe we can either expand through volume or price increasing. I didn't think that we had a model that could do that. So we sold. Um, that shows how, you know, we, it, it wasn't necessarily the whole market. We thought, eh, this is going to be a problem in a few years. It was just fundamentals. So looking at simple fundamentals and understanding the ratio between expenses and revenues and their drivers. Now we're going to talk about buying. When to buy. I don't time markets. So I buy when markets are up, I buy when they're down, we buy when they're sideways. We buy when the assets, the businesses are good, the revenue drivers are strong, I know and understand them, and I can improve them in some way. And if that is good, it fits within my core competencies, we say, this is a great buy, we buy it. Now, that also, of course, comes into you need to have a good philosophical view of that asset. Where is it going in the future? You don't want to buy something that technology will disrupt. But I view that as understanding the revenue drivers, understanding where the revenue comes from and the risk of you obtaining that revenue at that level or a higher level in the future. So guys, really, you need to understand the macro. Don't let anybody tell you you don't. You don't want to sit in TV and hear what the Fed chairman's saying or the next president's saying, and you have no clue what is going on, why they're doing what, and then you're making bad financial decisions based upon emotion. Don't be emotional about it. But you need to execute micro. Look at the drivers. Look at the force of those drivers and how strong they are, where they're coming in from. 
understand the third one, value. This is probably the most important. If you can understand how to value something, then you can figure out what you should buy it at, what it's worth. Now, understanding the expenses and the drivers, right, are really important to this because when you're looking at value, you have two things. You have current, past, and future. Future value comes in two ways. Future value comes in one form. That is, oh, I think prices are going to go up. This is the worst form of valuation ever because this is speculation. Speculation is not valuation. Remember that. Speculation is not valuation. Valuation looks at what is happening within this business today and what can I do that will improve it and how can I run it and make it better over time. This is an active valuation. This isn't a hope, a dream, and think prices are just going up. Why? Why are they going up? And if it's completely out of your control, maybe you shouldn't be doing it. Now, granted, virtually everything's out of our control. I don't want to get into this philosophical discussion of this. I'm talking about today. Now, looking at that business, looking at that asset, what's in my control? What's not in my control? How can I increase value for my people that are renting, for my people that are buying? How can I make the business better? How can I do things better that will increase the revenue of that business or that asset over time, which will allow me to obtain more value in this asset. That's it, guys. Those are the three things, okay? Um, I know I just kind of went on a very long rant. I'm very passionate about these things. This framework and modeling that we've used has served us outrageously well. And I don't believe that that framework that I just spilled out to you right now, is it's not changing for me. I'm going to be 65 and I'm going to be saying the same thing on this podcast. My views on execution, my views on market, my views on policy, uh, my views on um, monetary policy, my views on assets change with society because society changes. Markets change. You have to change. But the framework in which I value, which I invest which I run business, which all those things that I just mentioned, that doesn't change. That will stay the same and it will always stay the same. And that's what's important. That is our strategy. I am open for executional change, but I am very foundationally firm on the modes of investing, valuing, and um, really coming to terms with the process. And if you can merge those two things, you can create a clear path and move forward in confidence, not confidence that it'll always work out because that is ignorance. In fact, that's not confidence, that's ignorance, but that you are doing to your best ability and you are controlling the situation to your best ability outside unforeseen circumstances. Like I can't control if we go to war right? I can't control if the government decides to take on 400% GDP to debt and all our debtors call our debt due. I can't control any of that. So I'm not going to worry about it. 
and then I'll pivot when I need to pivot based upon those circumstances. Hope this helps everybody. Um, I've been thinking about this for a while, crazy times, but you need a format in which you can move forward and walk forward. And if you have that, you will always be good and always be successful. And remember, the government's got your back in making your assets worth more. So let that military just go to work and protect that dollar. God bless. And make sure that those politicians just keep causing inflation and try and pay in debt down. You just keep buying things. You just keep working on revenue producing assets that put money in your pocket today, tomorrow, next year. And while you're retired, let them do all of that and execute micro. Thanks everybody. Talk to you later.